Let us now turn to the New Testament, and we'll read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. First, we'll read the first 24 verses, and then we'll read verses from verses 38 to 48. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And then moving to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Connection with our scripture reading, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 40. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture. And certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with a sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them. To protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the image of God he made man. Are the words that we read in Genesis 9 verse 9. And I trust that you recognize that... uh, Uh, The Lord is repeating what is taught in the first chapter of Genesis, that God made man in his own likeness, after his own image, male and female. He made them. He made man after his own image. But in Genesis 9, verse 9, that that teaching uh, is repeated, and it's repeated after the fall, and uh, that means that the image remains for a biblical understanding and definition and value uh, for human life, despite the fact that the image of God has been defaced and so largely destroyed by sin. God made man in his own image and true righteousness and holiness and knowledge, and that has been ruined by the fall, but yet man remains a a moral, spiritual, rational being capable of knowing God by his grace. And uh, the uniqueness of human life is something that God yet respects and commands that it is honored and valued by us. So this is spoken after the fall into sin. And uh, it is spoken by God as his reason uh, for the just execution of the murderer. The fact that man is made in the image of God is the explanation for which God has placed in the hand of civil authorities the sword in order to execute judgment upon those who would deface his image. So it's after the fall, and it's spoken here in a particular context with a significant explanation, and it's also spoken before the law of Moses. And that has been recognized also by Bible interpreters that this uh, is a significant consideration 
in considering the case for the ongoing norm of capital punishment in society at large. In other words, uh, this teaching of God's word is not something that belongs to the Mosaic Covenant. It's not something that was unique to that theocratic period. But the arguments that were given are based upon the nature of humanity as created in God's image. And so long as that does not change, God wants his image to be respected and honored and even avenged where it is violated. Man made in the image of God is fundamental to a true respect for life. That's basic to our understanding of the sixth commandment. There's no evolutionary view of man that can uh, uphold this respect. There is no kind of godless philosophy. And by godless, I don't simply mean uh, teaching that is overtly and drastically, explicitly opposed to the existence or the, the, the word of God. But I'm talking about the kind of education that everyone gets in government schools where God is treated as if he is totally irrelevant for understanding life, for understanding ethics, for understanding the world, for understanding humanity. If God is treated as irrelevant, such teaching, such philosophy is godless. And any kind of godless education cannot properly ground a respect for human life in the only true foundation for that respect. And that pertains to the true nature of man. Not as a product of evolution. Not as something that we assign value to according to our own views. But as something that is created by God. Something that is defined by God. And something that is to be valued on God's terms. God made human life unique in his creation. God created all life. And there is a sense in which we are to honor and respect all life also for that reason. But only man is created uniquely in his image. And God defines that uniqueness. And we need to obey God's will and God's word in order to respect life for God's sake. And if we do not respect life for God's sake, we do not truly respect life. God commands us to value and protect his image. And we're going to consider the exposition of that teaching of scripture as it's summarized here in this Lord's Day, beginning with the, the, the obvious fact, and I think it's a fact that is generally recognized uh, in every culture to some extent, as it's been recognized throughout history, and that God, and that is that, uh, murder is wrong. We know why. It's because God prohibits murder. And God prohibits murder in all its forms. God forbids all forms of outright murder. When we get to the, the eighth commandment, the, the catechism makes a distinction between the kinds of thefts that are punishable by law in other words, the kind of theft that uh, the state and the government itself generally recognizes as wrong and uh, other kinds of thefts that may not be 
technically criminal, but they still involve sin, right? We understand there's a difference between crime and sin. There are many sins that are not crimes. There are no legal, state, government, local rules against them. That doesn't mean that they're not sins. And there are also things that in many places are forbidden by law, but they're not sins. So we make a distinction and recognize that. But certainly all forms of outright murder are forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. Murder by by premeditation, right? The kind of murder that Cain committed when he killed his brother. Or by careless disregard for life. And we recognize that there are all different kinds of legal definitions uh, for this, right? Involuntary manslaughter, first and second degree. There's a whole variety of descriptions of... Uh, of homicide. There's involuntary homicide, right? And uh, we recognize not only that such laws that distinguish between first degree or premeditated murder and other forms of, of, uh, of manslaughter, it could be a negligent manslaughter where there is no intention to kill, but it takes place uh, during activity, which itself may be unlawful or harmful, and results in the death of another person, which could be criminal. And we recognize that even such distinctions, not only are they recognized in almost every culture, but they themselves are taught in Scripture. The Bible certainly speaks of different kinds of of, uh, of taking others' lives with varying degrees of, of culpability or guilt and different levels of punishment. And most people recognize that uh, murder is wrong in general. And we know that it's because God prohibits murder in protection of the value of life as he created it. But we must uh, proceed also and uh, address the fact that God prohibits all forms of legalized murder. Now that might sound strange, right? Legalized murder? And it's tragic that we even have to address such a thing in our modern a uh, sophisticated culture. But we live in a culture where legalized murder, sanctioned murder, is a characteristic of our, of our society. We know that the image of God begins at conception. The Bible is abundantly clear in its teaching on this. Not so much by a specific exposition of it, by but by many passages in which it is simply taken for granted. We're told in Luke chapter 1 that Elizabeth conceived, what? A son. It was a son that she conceived. And it was a son from the point of conception. And this babe, he is called, leaped in the womb before he's six months old, when the mother of our Lord visited Elizabeth. That's how Elizabeth speaks of Mary. When our Lord Jesus Christ was newly conceived and just beginning to be formed in her womb, Mary is addressed as the mother of my Lord. Now, we could go to many other uh, similar passages. We could go to Psalm 139, this beautiful psalm that uh, proclaims God's wonders and the formation of life in the womb. And David extols God's 
uh, omniscient wisdom and power in his own formation in such language where he says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Man is conceived and born in sin. The reality of that sin nature that has defaced the image of God goes all the way back to conception. And again, a passage that takes for granted, it assumes the reality of that human life, even if in its earliest beginning and existence. Abortion at any stage is ending a human life in the image of God. And any compromise on that point just opens the door to a kind of subjective, unregulated, arbitrary definition of life and the practice of taking human life that is contrary to the teaching of God's word in its simplicity and clarity with respect to the value of life from beginning to end. The same then is true of assisted suicide. There are different ways in which we could assess this in the light of God's word. Certainly it is an extreme form of self-harm, right? In addition, God forbids, rather, uh, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Certainly that prohibits suicide. It uh, prohibits even other forms of of self-abuse, mistreatment. It's interesting that, uh, you know, that the catechism at, at every point, almost after every line, it gives us scripture references. And it's very instructive to look up those passages and, and, uh, and see what the authors were thinking when they selected a particular passage. I found it interesting that in connection with self-harm, it quotes from Romans, uh, chapter 13, verse 14, where it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And the previous verse before that says, let us walk properly, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust. And it seems to me that unless there's some kind of a misprint, the authors of the catechism cited Romans 13 because they recognize that self-abuse by way of indulgence by way of the misuse of alcohol, by way of sexual uh, immorality, is detrimental to human health and flourishing. And to engage in such activities recklessly by abusing God's good gifts is a form of self-harm that God prohibits in His love for us. God prohibits all forms of legalized murder. God prohibits all disguised forms of murder. Catechism enumerates some of those. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. And it says that in God's sight, all these are disguised forms of murder. And here it cites 1 John 3, verse 15, that says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
even if you should manage to disguise that hatred with fair looks and smiles, or by whatever means God knows it. These are heart sins of thought and attitude. They may be restrained in some measure. They may be covered to a a certain degree. But God sees through every disguise. And in fact, it's really hard to hide such attitudes even from others who are perceptive, right? Because our our gestures, our, our looks, the attitudes, they have a way of showing in our eyes, in our facial expressions. I remember a, an expression my mom would often say when us kids were fighting. She'd say, if looks could kill. And that's that's all she would say. But what she meant is the way you're looking at your brother and sister, if looks could kill, they'd be dead right now. Because you're looking at them with a kind of hatred and contempt that she interpreted as, in effect, a kind of murder. Yes, if looks could kill, how many people would we have killed so far in our lives? God be merciful to us as he sees all the ways in which our sinful hearts become manifested in the ways that this summary speaks of. Gestures or insulting words. All disguised forms of murder are prohibited by this perfect and holy law. But then secondly, positively, God requires the prevention of murder. And God armed the state with a sword for this. Quoting again from Genesis chapter 9, or Romans chapter 13, which explicitly mentions the sword. It says, uh, He is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The state is armed with a sword, not by a social contract, but by God. God has appointed gods, civil leaders and authorities, who who are to represent him. And part of that way in which they are to exercise their authority is to protect life. And one of the ways in which life is to be protected is to avenge a disregard for life when it is expressed by murder or where it's expressed by uh, warfare. You know, historically, the, the, the Christian church, in fact, by and large, there has been a recognition and uh, the history of biblical understanding has uh, has seen the justification in such passages of Scripture for uh, a just war theory. Because engaging in war involves the taking of lives. Now, if that is legitimate and lawful and necessary, there has to be good reason for it. It cannot simply be to increase your kingdom. It must ultimately be a kind of defensive war against that which would threaten life. This has been the justification and an understanding of the, 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 the legal basis and the legitimacy for deadly force. Sometimes police officers have to use deadly force to protect lives, sometimes their own. In fact, such deadly force is lawful in self-defense. There is a distinction between killing and murder. The commandment is, thou shalt not murder. There is such a thing as justifiable homicide, right? 
the taking of a human life that is justified and that actually would occur for the sake of protecting life. And you see, that means that the value of human life is not absolute, right? You know, some people in their ignorance and foolishness will say, well, if God forbids murder, how come he murders? How come he kills people? No, God executes justice. And God indeed uh, inflicts and demonstrates his wrath against evil and sin. In fact, when you look at Genesis 9, he had just done so on a massive scale. He had swept away all human life from earth, except eight people. And he will judge the world in righteousness again. And one of the reasons why he judged the old world was that the earth was filled with violence. And God vindicated his honor and his name in carrying out justice. That is the biblical explanation for the extermination of the Canaanites. After 400 years in which God bore with their gross ungodliness, you name it, every vile form of sin had been practiced by them from generation to generation, including burning their infant children in their sacrificial practices to their idol gods. And the time came when God said, enough. And he executed judgment by the sword of Israel. They were his commissioned servants on this very unique occasion. But it was God's justice that was carried out by the sword of Israel. They were commissioned by him. But the Bible teaches that it's the task of the state to execute justice in his name. It's not the commission of murder. You know, you have these instances in the Old Testament when... uh when a capital punishment was carried out. In the instance, for example, of, of David against the one who claims to have taken the life of Saul, the king. And he had him executed. And before he was killed, he says, your blood be upon you. In other words, this was no commission of murder. This man had brought upon himself his own death by his disregard for life. So yes, capital punishment is not a case of doing the same kinds of things that the bad guys do, but in a state-sanctioned way. No, it's entirely different. It is a way in which God wants a testimony to be born of the sanctity of life. And we believe that indeed it is a deterrent to such evil. Now, that is an answer every question that might be raised about this connection, but it's the principle of the thing that we ought we ought to be clear on. The New Testament testifies to that. There's this interesting comment, seems like kind of an offhand remark, where Paul, when he's before the Sanhedrin, he says, if I've committed anything worthy of death, I'm not unwilling to die. It's an acknowledgement that there are things that are worthy of death. We also appreciate that one function of the law is the restraint of sin. Biblical interpreters, historically, Reformed uh, theologians have, have recognized three uses of the law. And yes, one of the, the primary uses is to reveal the reality of our sin so that we might know our need of the Savior. It's a teacher of sin. That's the first use of the law that's referenced in the Heidelberg Catechism. And the third use of the law, which is like the main use of the law, 
is a rule of thankful living. It was given to God's redeemed people so that they might know how to live before him and, and seek to honor him. But the second use of the law is to restrain sin, to kind of keep a lid on it. Calvin describes how that works. He says, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. And so the law serves to uh, uh, attain a, a measure of justice on the earth. It's by no means perfect, but it does serve to restrain sin. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus told the disciples. And that even involves the idea that, that godly living serves as kind of a preservative because even where people are not converted, even where people are not one to follow the ways of the Lord, the examples of goodness have an instructive effect upon their lives. And it preserves society from descending into anarchy. And to the extent that the Christian testimony is withdrawn from society, and to the extent that the laws of God are not maintained on the level of the state, the result is that society increasingly descends into lawlessness with all the misery that comes with it. In Ecclesiastes verse, uh, verse 11 of, uh, of chapter 8, it says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Now there's a, there's a, a principle involved in this teaching here, and that is that punishment or the fear of punishment keeps people in line to a certain extent. We ought to be thankful for that. We ought to recognize that God has appointed the state to exercise that kind of influence in society. And we should be willing to testify to that. We should be willing to testify to, to the authority and the goodness of God's commandments, God's law in this evil world in which we live. This prevention of murder is also a matter of Christian witness and testimony. Our catechism says that we must not be party to these sins in others. We must not uh, go along with these sins against God's image by others. We must never participate in an assisted suicide. The law of God forbids such assistance, being a party to someone else's desire to take away their own life unlawfully. We ought not to communicate some kind of acceptance for it. We may well communicate an understanding of the difficulty of suffering and the impulse to want to relieve that suffering and be compassionate in the way we address these things, but not in a way that communicates a kind of understanding that would suggest a kind of acceptance and sympathy that refuses to testify against it. No opposition, no protest. At a certain point, that becomes enabling. With respect to the third commandment, we are to do, it says we are to do what in us lies to prevent the blaspheming of God's name. Well, we ought to do what uh, within us lies also to prevent murder. And we can sin by our silence as well. 
In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8, it says, Open your mouth for the speechless, those who can't speak for themselves in their own defense. Open your mouths for those who may be lying in the hospital in a state of mental confusion and physical pain. And they're being invited by health professionals to a quick, easy exit. And you can be sure that as the acceptance of assisted suicide increases, the obligation to get assistance in taking one's life will increase as well. And the pressure upon vulnerable people. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. You know, we can sometimes be too limited in our thinking, in our goals when it comes to our, our Christian witness. And what I mean by that is that we can think exclusively in terms of trying to persuade and win people to the faith, to be instruments of their conversion. Yes, we should pray that God would enable us to do that, to be his instruments, that he would work through our testimony. But the motivation for Christian witness is not limited to that. It's bigger than that. And if it's limited to that, the dangers that we would always think in terms of how would we be winsome? How would we be persuasive? How would we remove any offense to our message? We don't want to make people feel bad. We don't want to make them feel guilty. Yes, we do. We want to be instruments by which God the Holy Spirit makes people feel bad and guilty and confronts them with the reality of their sin and their need for Christ. Now, we must do that gently and lovingly, but we must not compromise the teaching of Scripture, and we must realize that there are other issues involved. We must understand that God is glorified, not simply when people are converted. God is glorified when sin is restrained. God is glorified when a faithful testimony to the truth is given. God is glorified when people are left without excuse because they've heard the message. And God is honored by the testimony of the truth. And it will appear on the day of judgment that they heard a faithful witness who warned them against the consequence of sin. And God's justice is honored by their lack of excuse before a Christian witness. So we ought not to think in terms of the Christian testimony, only in terms of our prag. Not a pragmatic, indeed it's a God-honoring, glorifying goal to, to win people. But it's bigger than that, because the glory of God is bigger than that. Preventing murder is part of our calling by our testimony. But preventing murder begins with ourselves. You see, if murder begins in the heart, if murder is even committed in the heart, We must fight it at its roots. We should put away all thoughts of vengeance. We should hate sinful hatred. Right? You who love the Lord hate what is evil. Hate sinful hatred so as to fight against it. You know that the shocking thing that the Bible teaches about murder, brothers and sisters, the shocking thing that the Bible teaches about murder is not capital punishment for murderers, not by any means. We heard probably the most shocking teaching about murder in our reading of John chapter 5 when the Lord Jesus says, Yes, you have heard 
that whoever you have heard, you shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Yeah, in danger of, of capital punishment, actually. They were familiar with that. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment on a different level. And whoever says to his brother, Rack, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. That's the radical teaching of the Bible against murder. And beginning with ourselves then means fleeing to Christ, knowing that he suffered capital punishment, right? The Lord Jesus Christ suffered capital punishment, state-sanctioned. You might say a state-authorized kind of death. Jesus did nothing worthy of death, but he was willing to die for lawbreakers. And God used a lawful power of the state in order to testify to God's lawful judgment against sin. You know, you might say that technically, if the charges were true, according to the Old Testament, blasphemy was a capital crime. Now, again, that is something that is unique to Israel. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say, go kill all idolaters. But idolatry was a capital crime in Israel, even at the day, in the days of Jesus. If Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, that was something worthy of death in that context. Or if, if Jesus was actually guilty of treason, if he was actually guilty of seeking to raise insurrection against the state, we recognize that today in many uh, modern societies as a capital crime. To betray one's country, to commit treason, that's been recognized as a capital crime. Jesus was completely innocent of those charges. And it was unjust for Pilate personally to sentence him to death. And yet it was a testimony of how God is just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And Jesus' public death, a state-sanctioned death by one who is authorized to administer justice in God's name served for that public testimony of what God is doing on a far deeper way than what Pilate was doing. You know, there's a sense in which if... if uh, Capital punishment is absolutely categorically wrong, period. There was no way for God to carry out his purpose in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a manner as to give public display of the execution of justice in the way of saving his people. But the state, according to its God-given authority, was the instrument by which God did that. And that's very comforting to us. God is just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus, who took our place and suffered the judgment that our hate deserves, that our murderous looks and thoughts, our desires for revenge, and our failure to love deserves. And that leads us finally in conclusion God commands the opposite of murder. You know that this is one of those commandments where people give themselves a pass. I don't, I don't hurt anyone, or I, I try not to hurt anyone, and they're lying in both instances. It's not true. People hurt each other, and they try to hurt each other. That's part of our depraved nature. 
But the question of the sixth commandment is not, do you not hurt anyone? The question of the sixth commandment is, do you love everyone? Really? Do you love everyone? As answer 107 defines it. God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them. To protect them from harm as much as we can. And to do good, even to our enemies. That's quoting the Lord Jesus, who says, Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Love indeed does no harm to our neighbor. That's how uh, Paul summarizes the second table of the law. And if only we did no harm to our neighbor. But it means more, doesn't it? It means loving the image of God. Loving it even though it is distorted and ruined by sin in others as it is in ourselves. And seeing the glimmerings of that, that image even as it remains in everyone and to see those glimmerings of God's image for what they are and valuing them for God's sake. It means loving God's image also as it is being renewed in us as brothers and sisters of a spiritual family until we all come together to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we come to that day in which the whole body, the whole church of Jesus Christ, with all the individual manifestations of the image of God and the almost limitless variety of personalities and characteristics, all together reflect the absolute perfection of the image of Jesus Christ and to love the image of God all the way along that process, and to love the image of God as it is perfectly revealed in God's Son, the sinless one, our Savior, so that looking to him as our Savior, looking to him as our perfect model, that by the Holy Spirit we might be conformed more and more to his image, that the image of God might be renewed in us, imperfectly as it always will be in this life, until when? Until he comes and he is manifested and we see him as he is and we will be like him. There's the beauty of the sixth commandment. It's positive teaching. Amen.